Welcome to Talk World Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk World Radio, we're talking about empires and the governing of the globe. Our guest is Alfred W. McCoy, who is the author of a tremendous new book called To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. His book, A Question of Torture, CIA Interrogation from the Cold War to the War on Terror in 2006, provided the historical dimension for the Oscar-winning documentary feature, Taxi to the Dark Side. Alfred McCoy, welcome to Talk World Radio. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for writing this book. Why have you focused on this theme of empires? Because right now we're at one of those rare moments in human history in which not only is American empire, American global hegemony, fading after 70 years as the dominant global power. But the world order of rule by international law, international organizations such as the United Nations, the World Health Organization, the World Bank, all of these are are fading. And there's a rise of a new global hegemon, China, that is not only challenging US global power, so it's an ordinary imperial transition in that sense, but it's doing something different. It's challenging the entire world order that the United States constructed and which has governed our globe with reasonable success for the past 70 years. And so at this moment of epical change from one era to another, I thought it was time to take stock, look back over the last 700 years and figure out how and why did not only empires rise and fall, but something more persistent, something more pervasive called a world order, why those give way to new world orders and what happens when that change occurs. And what I, what I found by starting in the, the Black Death of 1350, which killed 60% of the population of Europe and China, and then sweeping through 700 years with the rise and fall of 90 empires and the succession of three, now four major world orders, all the way to the coming climate crisis of 2050, what I realize is that world orders change through the coincidence between a, a major cataclysm, a pandemic, a devastating war, and then some deeper geopolitical change. When these two forces come together, one world order dies and a new world order emerges. And we're at one of those moments right now. We are with the, with the current disease pandemic. Is that part of it? No, no, it's the... Fading of US global power, okay? The rise of China coinciding with climate change, okay? The the Black Death was, as I said, 60% of the population of Europe died. And it wasn't just one pandemic. It didn't last just a year or a decade. It started in 1347 and it went as far as 1420 into 1430. It lasted about 70 or 80 years. So, and each one of these, the, the, the first, infection was the most devastating, but each one took up to 20% of the population of Europe when, when they are, or the affected areas. It didn't spread quite as widely with each successive infection. So that, that, that was a, something that killed medieval Europe and unleashed the powers of Europe uh, in the age of exploration. For a thousand years prior to the Black Death, Europe had been ravaged by these barbarian invasions, the Goths, the Visigoths, 
the Mongols sweeping out of the steppes of Eurasia and sometimes sweeping across the whole of Europe. And the, the, the Black Death not only killed 60% of the population of China and Europe, but it completely demonstrated the Mongol Empire, which ruled everything from China all the way to the banks of the Danube, it was one of the biggest empires in history. And it was, it was destroyed by this pandemic, completely erased. And so that meant for the first time in a thousand years, Europe was no longer faced with the barbarians riding in from the east and they could turn their energies to exploring the west, discover the Americas, Africa, dominate the Indian Ocean and much of Asia. And that was the rise of the first world order, the Iberian world order, a, a global system run by the Portuguese and Spanish for 300 years. And, and what was the end of that? The Napoleonic Wars. Uh, they were fought for 20 years uh, killed six to seven million people in Europe, were fought worldwide. And in that, it effectively destroyed any rival to British power. All of the, the, the preceding rivals to British power were effectively destroyed in that war. Uh, in the Great Battle of Trafalgar in 1805, it was not just the French Navy that was defeated, but it was a joint French-Spanish Navy. And that meant from that time on, to quote the song, Britannia ruled the waves. And from 1815 to 1914, was the British imperial era, a hundred years of British dominion. And that died in a combination of World War I and then particularly in World War II. World War II killed between 70 and 80 million people, destroyed many of the cities across the breadth of Europe and Asia, uh, roiled the oceans and was devastating enough to eliminate not only Japan and Germany, but also Britain was exhausted by that war. They were bankrupted. They lost 400,000 dead. Uh, they, they suffered tremendous damage from the German bombing. And out of that rubble emerged the US global power. Because although we lost 400,000 men, that was nothing compared to let's say the 20 million that Russia lost in that war, the 25 million that China lost. So, you know, like Britain and the Napoleonic Wars, they were safely offshore supplying finance and sending uh, manpower, but fighting mainly with their navy. So they, they, they made great profits and suffered little damage. And so they emerged strong after the Napoleonic Wars. Same with us in World War II. Yeah, we fought hard. We suffered 400,000 dead, but again, that was small. So we get, gained much advantage on little damage and emerged from that war as the most powerful empire in human history. And not only did we use that power to establish our dominion, but we also use that power to establish something unique, a, a liberal world order. The Bretton Woods system that created the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund set up this global economy that, that basically we haven't had anything like the Great Depression or you know, the, the terrible recession of the 1890s. That, 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 that system has worked. We've had periodic recessions, but nothing like a depression. So that worked. In 1945, we set up the United Nations. And not only that, but we set up this whole host of international organizations to govern the globe. Things like the, uh, uh, the, the uh, World Health Organization uh, that, ends that has worked to end pandemics and has been quite effective actually. Uh, Ebola never got anywhere. You know, it, it infected parts of Africa. It could have been a devastating pandemic. WHO stepped in, blocked that. And has blocked many, many pandemics and promoted inoculations worldwide like polio to extirpate diseases. Okay, polio was once a, a terrible uh, pandemic. I got it as a child. You know, I still bear the scars of that disease. 
many of my generation did. Well, you know, once the soft vaccine came in, World Health Organization disseminated, and polio was, except for some parts of Pakistan and Afghanistan, has virtually disappeared. So, you know, it was a very effective world order, and it's now being seriously challenged by China. And part of it's been our own mismanagement, our own errors. As I like to say, America's decline is a bipartisan effort. Yeah. I, you, when I look at the United States and the rule of law and President Biden holding conferences about promoting democracy and the, and the, the, uh, the, the, the rule of order and, and so forth, I, I also see the United States as a top holdout on major treaties, human rights treaties, disarmament treaties, a top opponent of the International Criminal Court punishing other countries, even for supporting the rule of law, uh, a, a, a unilateral rogue sanctioner of other nations and blockader of other nations, punishing third nations that do any business with those nations and so forth. Is, is the U.S. role building up and upholding international law or the opposite or some combination? You know, as I say in that book, To Govern the Globe, one of the characteristics of each of these successive world orders, the Iberian, the British, and the American, is a, a duality between their principles and their realpolitik practices of empire. So when you go back, let's say, to the Iberian Empire, their invasion of the Americas was murderous. The population of Mexico, through disease and, 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 and overwork and death, went from 25 million to 1 million people. It was one of the greatest demographic disasters in, in history. Um, and out of that was born through the efforts of, of Spanish friars like uh, Antonio Vitoria uh, uh, and uh, particularly Bartolome de las Casas was this searing indictment of what the Spanish done. Bartolome de las Casas was a Spanish friar who spent 30 years as a missionary in the Americas and saw firsthand what the Spanish had done. And he documented this in uh, a dozen books that he published at the very end of his career. And out of this agony uh, came the concept of human rights. It was the Spanish jurists, the Spanish monks, who argued that all human beings were the same, that we were all humans, we all had the same uh, uh, inalienable rights. Okay? And so the Spanish empire produced slavery and, and gross violations of, of, of human rights and the very concept of human rights. During the, the British imperial age, there was another duality. Very people were aware that the British uh, empire devoted itself right at the very start of its year in 1815 in the treaty that ended the Napoleonic Wars. Clause 15 carried a global prohibition against slavery. And based on that, the British Navy spent 80 years extirpating slavery in the Atlantic. They lost 15,000 sailors. Uh, they spent 2% of the gross national product of Britain on this campaign to crush slavery. And by the, between the 1860s and the 1880s, they ended it in the Atlantic. They turned their attention to the Indian Ocean. They weren't as successful there. But at the same time, the British did that, this enormous human rights campaign that ended this scourge of slavery that had persisted for 400 years. They also introduced colonialism. And under colonialism, depending on where you were, you had to work as many as 
30 days a year doing what's called corvée labor, which is basically unpaid coerced labor on infrastructure, building roads, digging canals, constructing the infrastructure that made imperialism, British imperialism, and that of its European counterparts so profitable. So that duality. America is the same. You know, the genius of the American liberal world order is that we have created a body of law and a nexus of institutions that is better than we are, okay? That we fail our own system, that we're still struggling to live up to the principles enshrined in that system. And that's the genius of the system, you know? It's better than the people that created it, as all good systems should and will be, right? And when, when American power is fading, we're not just losing our military bases and our predominant economic position and our dominance of the globe, but also as our, as our military and economic power fades, China is challenging that liberal world order. They're absolutely defying it. I mean, the treatment of the Uyghurs is a gross violation of human rights. They've absolutely defied that. Um, when they started uh, clearing uh, uh, seven shoals in the South China Sea and turning shoals into islands and then military bases, and then claiming the 200 miles of sovereignty around each of those little dots in the South China Sea, the Philippines, because their 200 mile exclusive economic zone was violated by one of those dots, went to the world, the, the permanent tribunal in The Hague, and the Philippines won a resounding victory against China. China just said it had no validity whatsoever, completely wiped away. And that permanent court at The Hague has been around since 1917. It's over 100 years adjudicating international disputes. China just waved away the whole body of international law, saying it had no validity whatsoever. So China is, is overturning not just US global power, but that liberal world order as well. Let me, let me play devil's advocate for a minute. When the same court ruled against the United States in Nicaragua mining a harbor, the United States brushed it away. When the United States uh, wants to invade territories and start wars, it simply does so. Uh, it arms, trains, and funds over 90% of the most oppressive governments around the world, uh, in, including some of the very worst abusers of human rights. Uh, and it's hard to find worse abuses of human rights than US-led wars of recent decades. What, what is it that about China, which uh, I find it very dangerous to talk this way about China while the United States is intent on ginning up war and hostility with China as we speak, what is it about China that's different from the US challenge to its supposedly its own system, which you call it genius, some might call it hypocrisy, right? this beautiful set of laws for everybody else. Yeah, again, it's very typical of every system's duality, okay? But when you think about it, if you trace the record of progress over the past 500 years, all right? The, the, the mass slaughter of the Americas, the enslavement of West Africans, the, you know, the, the colonialism that governed a third of the globe with this coerced labor, those have all, those have all gone away. Those have not just disappeared, okay? The British killed slavery, literally, but through that campaign. The US, you know, by setting up the, the UN and enshrining those principles in the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights, created words that contributed to the end of segregation in the United States, contributed to the end of apartheid in Africa. In other words, those principles do have effect. 
we have made enormous progress as a, as a human society transnationally, all right? Yes, there are excesses. Yes, there are wrongs, okay? But and that, that is the logic of the duality. We created this liberal international order that transcends us, that was created almost in spite of ourselves, all right? In fact, you know, if you want to go back to the creation of it, okay, very simply, in Dumbarton Oaks in Washington, D.C. in 1944, uh, the, the big powers got together, Russia, the United States, and they all agreed, okay, they were going to set up this thing called the UN. They were going to have this all-powerful security council in which they and a, a few rotating members would have this enormous power. And then Franklin Roosevelt said, you know, the General Assembly is just going to be a, you know, a talking shop for the little powers to get together and blow off steam. They went to San Francisco. The Latin Americans turned up. They already had a Latin American conference, and they came up with a distinct vision of what they wanted the UN to be. Then people like B'nai B'rith Jewish organizations, partisan organizations, the NAACP, all these civic society organizations turned up in San Francisco, and they forced the big powers in these open discussions and sessions to completely change the nature of the United Nations. All right, and even though you know they they put in these discriminations, these anti-racism clause in the UN Charter, and we did it, you know the, the Again, John Foster Dulles, a Republican conservative, later Secretary of State, wrote an escape clause saying that the, the UN Charter could not override the sovereign laws of any nation state. All right. Well, then that created a whole other movement. Three years later, Eleanor Roosevelt chaired the Human Rights Committee and drafted the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights to kind of trump that escape clause. All right. So in other words, the system developed a logic greater than the interests of the United States that truly enshrines 500 years of these struggles. And China is the first global hegemon that evolved in its culture outside this painful five century debate to create these principles. And it basically doesn't accept them, at least the communist leadership in China has no respect for them and is determined to overturn them. It still seems like the League of Nations, the United States would have been one among equals and it said, hell no. And the UN Charter, no matter how completely it was revi revised by Latin Americans, it still put five, the five of the biggest weapons dealers and warmongers uh, in a position of greater equality than others, you know, veto power, uh, and the power through the veto to control what even gets discussed in the Security Council. And far and away in recent years, the greatest abuser of that veto power isn't China, it's the United States. Yeah, okay. Admittedly, that is a, a reform that probably needs to be made. The one, the nature of the Security Council probably needs to be changed and maybe the veto power removed. I mean, I would actually argue for that necessarily. But let's go back to what you just said, where you compared the League of Nations, which was established in 1919, right after World War I, and compare that to the United Nations, all right? Now, <clears throat> at the League of Nations, Japan, which was one of the allied powers, came to, uh, to, to Versailles, and the only thing they wanted was that the League of Nations would introduce and accept an anti-racism clause. And they actually came before a deliberating committee chaired by US President Woodrow Wilson. And despite the fact that the British Empire was lobbying against it because they realized the problem this would present for their empires and their colonies. Um, you know, nonetheless, there was a vote by the, the delegates that approved the clause. Woodrow Wilson, who was a diehard racist and deep Southern segregationist, overruled the vote of the committee and the League of Nations did not adopt an anti-racism clause, all right? 
very much embittering the Japanese, really, in effect, at a moral level, destroying the League of Nations at its very birth. Well, a quarter century later, when we came to set up the, the UN, the American organizers were very mindful of what Wilson had done. And that's why racial equality, religious equality, human equality is enshrined in the UN Charter and is articulated in moving and powerful language uh, in the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And those words have had a effect beyond what all the hypocrisy, the denials, the compromises that we've made. Nonetheless, we, we, there is an arc of progress. I don't mean to sound like I'm you know, reading a children's story and talking about a, a wonderful world. No, but there is, a, there is when you, a, a steady line of human progress and it would be a great tragedy if these hard won gains were to be lost in this transition. If when you can say, you know, goodbye to the US empire, you know, it was an okay empire. You know, we did some right things, we did a lot of bad things, but goodbye, okay? Good riddance, US empire, but the international order, do we really want to get rid of the UN? Uh, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, which does development in poor countries, the World Health Organizations, and there are hundreds of these organizations. Indeed, the conference in Glasgow, which is still ongoing over climate change, that's under UN auspices. The reports that the UN uh, Committee on Climate produces regularly, which has collected a thousand scientists worldwide and given us a clear vision of, the, of, the, of what carbon and methane emissions are doing to our planet and the costs for all of us if this continues. That's all done in the UN auspices. It's, this is not to be underestimated. There is no other vehicle for doing this. And yet, uh, we're, we're speaking with Alfred McCoy, who, whose book is absolutely tremendous, and you should all read it, To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. Uh, and yet, this is conference number 26, and the first 25 have had the opposite effect of that intended, and the 26th seems dead set on continuing that pattern. In other words, the likelihood of ecosystemic and climate collapse uh, is ever increasing. And if you look at the, the scientists doomsday clock, the likelihood of nuclear apocalypse is ever increasing. Uh, does it matter that much, whether it's a US empire or a Chinese empire or a handful of other empires, or do we have no choice but to get rid of the whole idea of empire and, and go after and go after these problems that we have no choice but which to, to address or we're all going to perish? Well, first of all, getting rid of empire. Uh, for the foreseeable future, and I'll, I'll lay it out very quickly in just a sec, um, empires have been with us for 4,000 years. You know, in, in a narrow band of Humanity's 300,000 or 500,000 years of history. In the space of 6,000 years, we created everything from agriculture to metallurgy to writing and the world's first empire in 2000 BC. So we've had empires, an endless succession of empires for the past 4,000 years. And I don't think they're going to go, go away immediately. So what, what I'm arguing for is that the convergence between the US decline and China's rise in the context of global climate change, um, is I mean that there'll be, I think, a fading of US global power by 2030. The US National Intelligence Council did a study back in 2012 and said that by 2030, 
China will be the world's largest uh, economic producer. Uh, they'll have the capacity to challenge us. Uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers done analysis said that by 2030, the Chinese economy in real purchasing power will be 40% larger than the US economy. And since China spends about 2% of its gross national product on arms and we spend about 3%, as their economy gets bigger than ours, their army will. And they're already leading us in some areas of technology like secure satellite communications. And it looks like their hypersonic vehicles will be the first to come online ahead of us. Uh, and so there's you know, many ways in which the Chinese military will exceed ours, okay? So let's say by 2030, we're fading and the Chinese are rising. So how long have the Chinese got? I figure that climate change is gonna give them 20 years, maybe 30. Why? Because research is published in Nature, and they've done accurate measurements, figure that by 2050, Shanghai is gonna be underwater. Much of Shanghai was going to be permanently inundated. That's a home of 18 million people. It's the greatest economic engine in China. By 2070, there's going to be five episodes of what's called wet bulb temperature at 35 degrees. Now, what's wet bulb temperature at 35 degrees mean? It means that a combination of heat and humidity stops the human body from sweating so that a healthy individual sitting at rest at a wet bulb temperature of 35 degrees is dead within six hours. In other words, you sitting there, me sitting here, if it's wet bulb 35 degrees, in six hours, we will both be dead, right? It, you know, absolutely, you know? And so China's gonna have at least five instances of this sometime around 26, 27. In other words, the North China Plain, home to 400 million people, the heartland of China's population, its economy, and its greatest cities is going to become uninhabitable. China will retreat, and then the world is going to be faced with a very real question with out for the first time in 4,000 years, or in the modern era, for the first time in 600 years, we don't have a world order defended by a great global hegemon. And then the world is gonna be faced with a very real kind of change. All world orders have been based upon the idea that national sovereignty trumps human rights, that nation states sovereignty trumps all else. Maybe it will be time to create an empowered form of global governance that can actually do three things. One, uh, stop emissions, order nations that are emitting to switch to alternative energy, shut down their plants, natural gas, gold. Two, that as approximately 200 million people by 2050 are going to be climate change refugees, the UN High Commissioner of Refugees can order nations to accept these refugees. And finally, institutions like the World Bank, the IMF, regional banks can begin the systematic transfer of assets from the polluting industrialized nations to the hammered, under impoverished, underdeveloped nations to help them remediate climate change. These are the three critical things that have to happen to create a form of global governance capable of dealing with climate change disasters in the last half of the 21st century. Uh, Alfred McCoy, we've got about one minute left. I wish we had hours. Uh, why not make these important changes now when it might not be too late for some of them to, to have an impact? Why, why wait several years for some imperial shift uh, first? Uh, because to the best of my knowledge, although I'm sure we can find, look in the literature and find people who have said these things, this is not something that's been discussed. If you look at those, all those UN deliberations about climate change, okay, uh, they all focus on the environmental impact. None of them discuss the political impact, the impact this is going to have 
on the systems of global power and the need to adapt international institutions to deal with this climate crisis. If my book makes a contribution, and that's always open to debate, that's the contribution that I'm making. I very much hope it does. I recommend to everyone Alfred McCoy's book to govern the globe, world orders and catastrophic change. Uh, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk World Radio. David, thank you for having me. This is a great conversation. I really appreciate it. This is Talk World Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org. All past shows can be heard at talkworldradio.org. Talk World Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way.